Amen. Good morning, Mountain Park. Hey, somebody said my name. That's nice. It's nice to see you. Hello to those of you watching online. If you're watching online, just wave at your screen. As a matter of fact, everybody in the house, turn and wave at the cameras. Hello, we see you up there. We love you. We, we are grateful that you're joining us here online. And, and, and uh, Alan is away this week. He's at man camp. Probably took some hockey sticks to go bust some heads with him while he's up there. But uh, now he's up there with 40 to 50 other guys who are worshiping the Lord and growing closer to each other and their faith, which is awesome. So I get the joy, and I'm excited to lead us in the next part of our series on the freedom of Jesus. But before we do, I want to give you a quick update. Last week, we did a, an outreach offering, and we do them every once in a while, where we say, hey, all the money that, that comes in, all the giving that comes in, we're, we dedicate to, to outside these walls. It goes to meet the needs of, of others in our community and in other places in the world in order to make a difference. And our goal is to, to raise about $54,000, and in the end, you all gave $58,000. So... Praise the Lord. Thank you. I love being part of a church that takes making a difference seriously, that's willing to walk out our call to meet the needs of some of the most vulnerable people. So that's a, that's a great praise. Thank you, the Lord. Thank God for doing that in and through us. So uh, as I said, we are in a series called The Freedom of Jesus, and on week one, which was on Easter, and Alan warned you all, it was a buy one, get four free deal. So we, we are actually in uh, week four of our Easter message today, and we started uh, week one, Alan, by talking about what our problem is, right? Do you know what your problem is? And, and he told us our problem is what? Control, right? We all want control, we all want to be in control of our lives. We want to be in control of other people, what they think, what they do. We want, we want to have control, but no matter how much we want it, no matter how much we strive to control things, and we think that if we do control things, it'll make our lives easier and better. No matter how much control we want, we don't really have it. We don't have as much as we would like, and that can make us frustrated or exhausted or scared sometimes. And so week two, we talked about the solution, that the solution is Jesus that we can release control. Instead of trying to grab all the control, we can actually surrender to Jesus and start all over again, be born again, become a baby who's completely helpless and completely dependent upon their heavenly Father to shape their priorities, their morality, their identity. We can rely fully on God. And then last week, Alan talked about the result that when we surrender to Jesus, he works freedom in our life. He does amazing things in our life that Jesus didn't just come to just teach. It's not just theology, but we get to experience the power of Jesus in our life. He came to transform us in the way we live. And I want to just ask a question there. How many of you would say you have, in some way, shape, or form, at least once in your life, experienced that? Have you ever experienced the freedom of Jesus? Raise your hand if you've experienced a time in your life where Jesus has done something in your life. Keep your hands up for a second. If you're online, raise your hand virtually. Put a little wavy hand in the emoji section there or write me or something. Keep them up for a second. It's so important to remember that Jesus is not just an idea, that he is a living person who interacts. And so if you're here and your hand isn't raised, that's fine. It's totally great that your hand isn't raised. I just want you to know that you are in the company of people who have experienced Jesus. You can put your hands down. 
You're in the company of people today who say we know Jesus exists not just because we read about it in the Bible, which is true, but also because we've experienced his love and his freedom in our lives. And so the question today is how do we respond to that? What's our response? Is there, do, we, do we do anything with the freedom that Jesus gives us? What is our response to to that freedom. And so we're going to be looking in the book of Luke at a, an encounter that Jesus had. If you have your Bible, you can go to Luke chapter 10. Uh, I want to start by, by praying. Well, Lord, we come to you this morning and we, we surrender. We acknowledge that even with the control we do have, we often mess it up. And, and so this morning, I, Lord, lay down all of my control, and, and, and we come here and we say, would you please, whatever agenda we came in with today, whatever we, we set out to accomplish, we surrender to what it is you want to accomplish, God. So would you speak to us? Would you set us free, Lord, and remind us of who we are in you? It's in your name we pray. Amen. So Luke uh, was a doctor in the first century, or he was alive around the same time Jesus was alive, and, and uh, he uh, knew firsthand what the freedom of Jesus was like. He gave his life to Jesus and experienced it, and then he spent a, a lot of time going out with Paul and, and, and building churches and, and, and sharing the freedom of Jesus with other people, and he wrote a book about the early church called the Book of Acts, which is also in the Bible, and he wrote a book called the God we call the Gospel of Luke, which just tells us uh, all about the, the stories, tells us about what Jesus said and did. And so we're going to pick up in verse 25. On one occasion... An expert in the law, a, a theologian, a person who was a, a, an intellectual, stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus replies, what is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? And this, these questions would have been common back then. The, the rabbis and, and Jewish scholars would have had these conversations about eternal life and the law often. Jesus answers, sorry, the man answers, he answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this, and you will live. So this is it. This is our response, that little but big four-letter word. Love, love, that our response to the freedom that Jesus has given us is to love. Once we give up control and experience the freedom of Jesus, we are free to love. You cannot love people if you're trying to control them, right? Can we all agree with that? If you're trying to manipulate people, manipulate every circumstance to go your way, it's really hard to love people. But when you let go and you experience the freedom of Jesus, then we can really love. Now, now it's important, uh, one of the things when you read the Bible, it's important to remember every now and then that the Bible was written for us, not to us. And what that means is that the Bible was written thousands of years ago in a different language, in a different context. And sometimes our English translation, our English version of that doesn't convey all of the meaning of the original language. And so it's helpful sometimes to go back and look at some of the original language. And so in this case, much of the New Testament was written in Greek, in ancient Greek. 
And the ancient Greeks had four different words for love. One was the word eros, which was a passionate, fiery, go storm the castle, rescue the princess, go sit in a dark room and write long poetry about how much you love someone, that kind of love. Another uh, uh, word for love is the word storge, which was an affectionate love. It was an affection between a, a parent and a child, a familial type affection. And a third was phileo, which was an admiration of friends. That is saying, I want you to be my friend because I admire something about you, something about you I want in my life. It's this admiration love. And then the fourth word, which is the word that's used in this scripture, is the word agape. And, and it, it doesn't just mean admiration or affection or passion, which all of that can be included in it, but it really means intentional devotion. It speaks specifically to the will, a willful dedication to a, an intentional prioritization of the other. One definition says it this way, to act in a way that benefits is, its recipient. Another way to put it is that to love is to surrender oneself to whatever's in the best interest of the other. To fully say, I'm, I'm going to surrender myself to whatever is in their best interest. And there's two people, these verses, well, a group of people and a person, who this verses that say uh, we are supposed to love. The first is God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength prioritize him above everything else. Find your identity, your worth in him. Prioritize what he thinks over everything else. Do you know what the most freeing word in that passage of scripture is? The most freeing word there? It's the word all. It's so freeing to say, I can give all of me to Jesus. I don't have to try and figure out, do I hold this little part of me back? What about, what about this little piece of my mind? Can I have this little piece of my mind separate from God? I want to control this or this piece of my strength. Can I use this piece of my strength in a way that pleases me? It's so freeing to be able to say, no, I can fully trust God. I can fully give him everything. And that's a big deal to say we, we, we find our worth, our identity, our goodness, our forgiveness, our morality, our priorities in him. And that means that everything else is an expression of our love for him. Our relationships, our work, our family, how we manage our money, what entertainment we watch, all of it is an expression of our love for him. And here's the absolute crazy thing. The absolute crazy thing about it all is that he actually deserves it. Our love, that love for God is actually deserved. It's actually merited. God is the only person in this whole planet that can say, I deserve to be loved in that way. I am worthy of that love. You can trust me. I am trustworthy and reliable. You can trust me with all your heart. You can trust me with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. See, Loving God, it's, it's not a theory, and it's not a shot in the dark. It's not a blind date. How many of you have been on a blind date? Keep your hand up if your blind date was successful. You are excellent. Well done. Good job. Are you married to the person who you went on a blind date with? Oh, then it wasn't successful. Come on. 
So, so I, 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 got, I got to go on a couple blind dates when I was much younger before I was married, and I was very superficial and materialistic and everything else, but it was, it was terrible. They were the worst things ever because you're spending the whole time leading up to it, you're wondering, is this even worth my investment? Is this even worth the time? Am I going to like them? Are they going to like me? Do, am I going to find them attractive? Are they going to find me attractive? Do I think they're funny? Do they think I'm funny? It's this whole crazy thing, and God takes all of that off the table and says, I'm going to tell you ahead of time that I love you. And I'm going to demonstrate it for you in a way that, that, that is going to blow your mind. I'm going to demonstrate this for you in a way that you can be assured of my love for you. I'm going to come and I'm going to die on the cross while we were, this is, the Bible says, this is how we know that God loves us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now, some of you, you've connected with that and you're like, dude, I get that. Yawn, absolutely. That's how I know that God loves me. I can be assured of that. But some of you who are here, you may be wondering, like, what? I don't get the whole cross thing, right? Like, I know we talk about the cross. We talk about Jesus dying on the cross. But what does all of that mean? So I want to give you a very simple version of it, just a very simple, quick version of why the cross is so important in terms of God's love and the freedom that we have in him. So we all want control, right? We all agree we all want control. And in the process of trying to gain control of everything, what happens is we try to manipulate we try to control, we try to manipulate events, we try to manipulate people. And in the process, we end up maybe lying. Or we end up valuing things that are less important as if they were more important. Or we end up using someone for our own purposes to meet an, a need in our own heart. Or we end up yelling and we get frustrated when we don't get what we want. And we, we get angry and we say things we shouldn't all along the way of trying to gain control. We mess up. And do you know what we earn when we do that, when we do that, what we earn is guilt. Now, I'm not talking about the feeling of guilt. I'm talking about guilt, as in you are responsible. When you are responsible for doing something wrong, you are guilty. So we have earned, with all of that stuff, guilt. And so, so God looks at us and he says, I want to give you my love. I want, to, I want you to experience me and, and experience freedom in your life and all of these things. But what you've earned, what you've earned is guilt. So I can't reward your bad behavior. I can't, I can't give you all this stuff in, as a reward for what you've done because that's not love. That's enabling. So, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to come to earth. I'm going I'm to come as a man. I'm going to live a perfect life. And then I'm going to take your guilt. I'm going to take the guilt that you've earned, the guilt that belongs to you, that you've earned by your actions, that you ever will earn in the future, the guilt of every single person on this planet. This massive amount of guilt, I'm going to take it on myself. That's why Jesus had to die. Because something had to be done with that guilt. Someone had to pay the price for our sins. That guilt couldn't just float up into the air somewhere. Jesus took that. And then do you know what he did? He showed that his love was greater than guilt by coming back to life again and conquering death. And so here's the deal. If there's someone who loves me enough to take all of my guilt, every single wrong action, wrong thought, wrong feeling, they're willing to take guilt, my guilt. They're willing to take my guilt and be punished for it. They love me enough, anyone who loves me enough to take my guilt and is powerful enough to conquer death. 
can be trusted with my heart, can be trusted with my mind, can be trusted with my soul, can be trusted with my strength. I am free to trust him. It's not a blind date. It's finding the perfect match made in heaven. I freely give everything because he has proved himself. And we can trust that. We are free to fully, completely, holistically invest ourselves in God because he's proved himself to us. Now, not only are we free to love God, but as the scripture says, we're free to love our neighbor, to love our neighbor. Now, that love, that love for our neighbor looks different from our love from God, right? Even though it's the same word, we, we, we don't prioritize what other people think about us. We prioritize what God thinks about us. We've given our, whole soul, soul, our heart, soul, mind to God already. So we still are called to love people, to act in their best interest, but it looks a little bit differently. And Jesus is going to tell us exactly what it looks like. In verse 29, the man asks Jesus, who is my neighbor? And it says he wanted to justify himself. Now, Jesus knows he's talking to a guy who's an expert in the law. He's, an, he's a theological heavyweight. This is a guy who loves debate. This is a guy who's having wants to have a theological debate. He wants to have an intellectual conversation back and forth with Jesus. So when he says, who is my neighbor? He's expecting him and Jesus to have this theological discussion. What does scripture say about who's my neighbor? This is what scripture says. Who is my neighbor? What scripture says, who isn't my neighbor? Let's have a debate about who is my neighbor. And he's having this debate because he wants to prove that he's good enough. So when, when he says he wants to justify himself, what he's saying is, I need, I need to be able to know that, that, that I am good enough. So tell me who I need to love so I can make sure to check it off my box. And, and love becomes a means to an end for him, a way to prove that he is righteous. So Jesus wants to get through to this guy, and, and he wants him to see that love is not just a religious obligation. It's not God dictating something, that love is an expression of God's freedom. An expression of the freedom that we have in Jesus. So he tells a story. He doesn't go back to the law like the man would expect. He tells a beautiful, amazing, very practical, very real, punch-you-in-the-face story. And you guys all know it, most likely. It's often called the parable of the Good Samaritan. You're probably familiar with it, or not you're familiar with the expression of a Good Samaritan. And it shows us, in the course of this parable, that we are free to freely bless anyone God puts in our path. That when, when it says to love our neighbor, that's what it means, that we are free to freely bless anyone God puts in our path. So starting in verse 30, in reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now, we don't know anything about this man. We don't know his race. We don't know if he was Jewish, if he was not Jewish. We don't, know, we, we don't know if he was rich, if he was poor. We don't know if he loved God, if he didn't believe in God. We don't know anything about him. We don't know if he made good choices in his life, if he made bad choices. We don't know anything about him. And I think that's intentional. Because I think Jesus wants us to know we're free to love people without having all the information. We don't need to know everything about someone in order to love them. Now, I understand, you know, you know, when you might be looking at charities or things like that, and you're thinking, i got to make sure this charity doesn't embezzle funds or make sure these, that's fine. Jesus is not talking about charities. He's talking about people. 
And he's saying when someone is in your path and God puts someone in your path, you don't have to know everything about them. You are free to not have to say, well, I would help them if I knew this, that, and the other thing. You don't have to know it all. You are free to love them without knowing all the information. The only thing we know about this guy is that he's half dead and that he needs someone to care about him. So then Jesus talks about the road. The road was from the road from Jerusalem to Jericho, and this was a well-known road. We have a picture of it. Here's a picture of what that road looks like. Doesn't look like any road in Phoenix, does it? Now let me ask you, does that road look safe or dangerous? That was a dangerous road. Right? And it was, it was, they, 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 that road was about 17 to 18 miles long. They had to walk along that road that robbers and bandits could be on. In fact, it was common for robbers and bandits on that road to attack people, to steal from them, to beat them up. And so when Jesus talks about this happening, the guy listening is like, yeah, that's what happens when you travel that road. And I think that's intentional. Jesus chose this road on purpose. Because it would be easy for us to say, for people to look at this man and say, you chose the wrong road, dude. You are where you are because of your poor choices. It's your fault. You chose this road. You didn't take anyone with you. You're there because of your own choices. And what Jesus says is, guess what? You're free to love people who make poor choices. You are free to love people who make poor choices. And in part because... Loving people is not an affirmation of their behavior. God's love for us was not dependent, is not dependent on our righteousness. So our love for other people is not dependent on their righteousness. God does not call us to evaluate someone's choices in order to decide whether or not to love them. We are free to love them, even the people who make poor choices. Anyone. You know, nothing the Samaritan does for this guy later on affirms his morality. All it does is make sure he doesn't die. Right? So we can do that. We don't have to worry about it. We, we can say, how do I take an action that benefits this person? I don't need to affirm them. But I can, and, and, and on the reverse, I don't need to, to, for you to affirm my choices in order for you to love me. I don't need to put that on you. I don't need to say, well, you don't really love me because you don't think that what I did here was right. You can still love me, and I can still receive your love, even if I disagree, even if you disagree with the choice that I made. So then Jesus goes on in verse 31. A priest, a priest worked in the temple, and they, they, they were offering sacrifices and interceded with God on behalf of others, happened to be going down the same road, which, as you saw, was not very big. And when he saw the man, because there's, the man would have been right there, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by. Levite also worked in the temple, maintaining the order and the services. He passed by on the other side. Now, we don't know why these men didn't help the man who was half dead, bleeding on the side of the road. We don't know. Jesus doesn't tell us. We can speculate, but we don't know. What we do know is that two holy religious people chose not to help. And, and we know that these people, most likely, they knew the command to love their neighbor. Just like the expert in the law, they knew my call is to love my neighbor. And so what that means is, is in a very practical way, they had to answer for themselves the question that the expert in the law was asking theoretically. 
they're practically faced with that question. Is this man my neighbor? And they had to answer that question. And for them, their answer was no. Naked, half-dead men lying by the side of the road are not my neighbor. That was how they decided to answer that question. And you know, the, the issue isn't just that they didn't help the man. The issue is that there was something inside of them that told them they couldn't. Or that they shouldn't. That they felt constrained by something that said, oh, 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 that man doesn't check all the boxes. You're not free to love him. They felt constrained, maybe by their own selfishness. We don't know, but they were constrained by something from freely loving someone who was desperately in need of God. And let, let me point out this too, real quick. It wasn't that they did something to the man. Their guilt, what they were guilty of, was inaction. It was inaction. It wasn't that they did something. It was that they didn't do something. And can I be honest? Can I just pause for a second? And can we just maybe collectively admit and acknowledge that this is how many people outside the church view people inside the church? That outside the church, there's many people, right or wrong, who view the church as holy, religious people who aren't willing to help. Holy, religious people who have a list of people who are in and a list of people who are out. A list of people who are worthy of their love and worthy of their help, and then a whole other list of people who don't deserve it. Now, I don't think that that perspective is fair, but we have to acknowledge that there. Because I, I, I can tell you, I have seen people love unconditionally in amazing ways inside this church. But I can also tell you, when I was an atheist, I experienced Christians who bullied me, who made fun of people, who belittled people. I knew believers who claimed faith in Christ and were racist. And we have to acknowledge that. So that we can say, we are free. We don't have to give in to any of that. We are free to love freely, to act in a way that benefits others. That's why we here are so passionate about making a difference. It's why we have the Go Fair last week. It's why we had the outreach offering. It's why we're having Jump In next week, was so that we as a church can stand up and say, we are not going to do nothing. We are going to, to be a, a blessing to anyone God brings into our church, anyone God brings into our path. We are going to, to be active in blessing them, in loving them. Picking up in verse 33, we get to meet the hero of our story. It's an unlikely hero. Jesus says, but a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was. Now, as soon as, as Jesus said the word Samaritan, everybody would have had a picture in their mind. And, 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 and Alan talked about this a few weeks ago um, uh, when he was telling the story of a, of, a, of a woman at the well. And he talked about how there was great animosity between Jews and Samaritans, that the Jews looked down on the Samaritans and despised them. They, the a Samaritan's testimony wasn't admissible in court, and, and, and Jews would regularly curse Samaritans inside the synagogue. And so when, when Jesus says a Samaritan happened along the way, the man thinks it's the robber. It's the bandits. They're coming back to this guy. And so it's a huge plot twist that Jesus says, hey, he went to him. He saw him. He took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds. Just think about the care. Bandaging his wounds. 
Have you ever put a band-aid on someone? He bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man who's half dead, lifted him up, put him on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, who knows where the nearest inn was, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, which was about two days' wages, and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Jesus says, you are free to bless anyone. And it's amazing to see how freely the Samaritan blesses this man. And we can learn from the freedom that the Samaritan expresses, that, 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 that we can be free with our possessions, right? That the, the Samaritan had oil and wine. And let me tell you, he had other designs for that oil and wine. He didn't set out on his journey that day saying, I'm going to take oil and wine just in case I happen to meet a half-dead, naked man on the road. No, he had plans for those, but he gave them up. He, he was free to say, I'm not owned by my possessions. I'm free to give these up. We can be free with our transportation. The man said, here's my donkey. I'm going to give up mine. I'm going to give up, make transportation harder for me. Take, I'm not going to ride it. I'm maybe going to take some things off of it that I carry myself. But I'm going to give my transportation freely to this man. We can be free with our money. This guy, the Samaritan, gives two denarii, two days' wages, and then he says, I'll reimburse you if it costs anything else. He's free. He says, I'm not controlled by my money either. Not, I don't get to control it. God, you get to control it. Help me use it in a way that benefits this person. I'm free to give of my money. And then the fourth one, we can be free with our time. Let's not forget this guy had a, was on a journey. He's going from point A to point B. He has a destination in mind. And he goes along, and he sees something, and he, he stops. He sets aside his agenda. And it says he takes that guy, and he takes him, and he spends overnight with him. Takes him in and spends the night with him. He gives up a full day. And then he says, I'm going to come back and check up on him and give him even more time. So let me just ask, which one of those is the biggest struggle for you? Which one of those are you the least free with? Is it your possessions? Is it your money? Is it your transportation? Or is it your time? For me, it's my time. For me, I want to be able to control what I do. I don't like anyone telling me what to do. I don't like when someone interrupts my day and I have to pay attention to them instead of doing the things that I want to do. And even when I have free time and I haven't made plans, I want the freedom to be able to do whatever I want with my time. And we say that, I am free to do with my time, when really what I'm saying is I'm going to be selfish. I'm not really free, I'm a slave to myself. And, and Jesus in this parable says, you can be free to give all of those things, to, to bless someone else. It's not an obligation, it's freedom. You know, you know what doesn't help me with my time piece? You know what doesn't help me? Is to tell myself, Jan, you suck at sharing your time. You don't do a good job. And so you need to force yourself to be better at it. So would you please just force, recognize your obligation to give your time and do better at it. Maybe that works for you. It doesn't work for me. You know what helps for me? Is to say, I'm not in control of my time. I'm free from being the person who decides what I get to do with my time. I am free to give my time. 
you know, I was working on my message one day, and I had four interruptions. All four times I wanted to say, go away, I'm busy. And God said, be free with your time. It's okay, i got to be free with my time. I'm not going to control it. I'm going to be free with it and see what God does. Which is the hardest for you? Which one do you need to be free in giving? Now, Jesus goes on to, to say, hey, who is your neighbor? And the man admits that it's the Samaritan who is acting like a neighbor because he showed mercy on him. And Jesus, all of this reminds us that, that we can freely care freely, love freely, invest in anyone God puts in our path. Anyone. Now, Jesus was talking before the internet. Shocker, I know. Before TV. Which means his path, when he says in your path, that's like really narrow. Nowadays, we can see needs from all over the world. Right? Nowadays, you, 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 can, get, you can see a picture of a half dead, naked, lying man from, you can see 573,000 of them on the internet. And so you have to figure out, which one am I going to do? Am I going to help build wells? Am I going to love my neighbor and take him a cake? I mean, what, what am I going to do, right? Here's the thing. Just pick one. Just pick one, okay? Just don't do nothing. Because remember, that's what the, the Levite and the, and, the, and, the, and the priest did. They did nothing. Doing nothing is not an option. We are free to just pick one and do something. And Jesus says, go, at the very end, go and do likewise. It's the second time he says do. Love is a do. There's a difference between knowing and doing. And Jesus says, you are free not just to know, not just to have the right answers. You are free to do. Now, I'm going to guess that when you get in your car and you drive home today, you're not going to come across a half-dead man. You probably aren't going to come across that the rest of your life, most likely. Some of you may, and if you do, you know what to do. Okay? But listen, this is not just, Jesus doesn't tell this story just so that we think in extreme circumstances, here was what we do. He wants us to know in very practical ways, anyone, anything, there's still a way we can, we can act to benefit that person. And I just want to share a story with you guys about an example of how that happened here at our church. It was a little bit of a news story that came out. And so just check, check this out. Check out this example. Five, a Glendale family feeling relief tonight. Now that their missing foster son, who has cognitive issues, has been found safe by the staff of an Ahwatukee church. 12 News met with the staff member that found the right words to help guide Ollie Jackson home. Every Thursday, Amanda Mosley and church staff make sure day-to-day -day operations are running smoothly at Mountain Park Church in Ahwatukee. But last Thursday, Amanda received a visit from a kind stranger. You know, he was wearing his mask. He was very respectful. He was very kind and patient, but he did have trouble communicating. Metro West is taking us. Copy Silver Alert Authority out of Glendale PD on foot. Last in the area, 53rd Avenue in Monte Cristo. Little did Amanda know, the man standing in front of the church was 24-year-old Ollie Jackson, who was reported missing. You see, earlier that day, before meeting Amanda, Ollie left his home after an argument. Ollie then hopped on a bus and ended up at the last stop. One of the tech guys up in our sound booth and I were visiting in our front lobby, and 
he noticed Ollie on the front lawn of our church. And I was like, well, it's kind of hot. And he's in a long sleeve shirt and pants. Um, I was like, hey, go talk to him. Ollie was born with cerebral palsy and has the cognitive age of a nine-year-old, making it difficult to communicate with others. Amanda, coincidentally, has worked with kids and adults with special needs, so she immediately knew that Ollie needed help. Just one of those, hey, I'm gonna hang out. Okay, we'll come hang out. You treat them like any other person, and they feel included and feel wanted and feel seen. The staff took Ollie to a Mesa outreach clinic where two nights later, he was reunited with his foster parents. But as relieved Amanda and the staff were, they were also afraid they'd never see Ollie again until... So we went over to their house and got to celebrate with them and see where Ollie lives. Um, he showed us his room. He was so excited to show us his room, all the superhero stuff. Um, and then the very next morning, they came to church. Tramai 12 News. So now we have this, this card that sits on our bulletin board. It's not a very long card. It's very short. It just says, there are no words but God. We are thankful for you. Look, I, I, don't, I don't share that story to say, look how awesome we are. When I share that story to say, what if we just loved people? What if, what, if, what if we let go of the excuses? What if we weren't controlled by our own fears, controlled by our own security, insecurities, con controlled by what if this happens or I need to know this or what, what if their choice? What if we were free from all that and said, we're, we're just going to love people? What difference would that make? Jesus ends the parable with those words. He ends the story, this encounter, by saying, go and do likewise. So let's go and do likewise. As, as we step out of the church today, as we step into our lives at work, whatever else, let's look for ways to be a blessing, to bless anyone God puts in our path. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you so much for your love for us, your unconditional love for us that allows us to give you all our hearts, to give you all our soul. Lord, would you set us free so that we can love freely in the same way that you did. Lord, let us to see even in the little things that you can do big things. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for coming. If you want to pray, there will be a prayer team up here in front. We'd love to pray with you. See you all next week.